Missouri Alliance for Freedom has attracted attention and controversy for how it pushes a conservative agenda through the Missouri General Assembly. And now the group's leader is talking about his organization's mission and focus. Ryan Johnson joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five four, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum. I'm a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio on this very wet Monday afternoon is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our guest who drove here all the way from Cass County, Missouri, through torrential rain and downpours. We have, And we're not talking about Chris Coster. We're not talking about Chris <laughs> Coster, sadly. We have as our guest in studio today. Ryan Johnson. And uh, what is your title again? President of the Missouri Alliance for Freedom. Welcome. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. I appreciate you uh, having me. As we do with, with all of our guests, we want to know a little bit about yourself and your organization, kind of how you got started in politics, where you went to high school, all that sort of stuff. Now, just before you get into that, I just want to explain to our listeners that uh, your group, the Missouri Alliance for Freedom, like I get stuff in my inbox almost every day. Yeah, sorry and this about group that. has incre- no, has increasingly become um, active in the political arena in Missouri on the conservative side, um, and promoting or objecting to various issues. I just wanted to lay that out. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons we invited you on the show. So proceed. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Yeah, we're a conservative organization with what I say a libertarian streak. Um, I got into politics, you know, quite frankly, um, about 10 years ago. And it was after a stint in the military uh, right out of high school, which I graduated from Blue Springs High School. Uh, but with St. Louis roots, you might say. Uh, my uh, my dad was from Ferguson, and my mom was from Florissant. Mm-hmm. And when they got married in the early 70s, they uh, honeymooned by moving to Blue Springs, <laughs> of all places, which is just in the in the Kansas City area. So I spent a lot of Christmases, Thanksgivings, and summers in Florissant, Ferguson, and then had an aunt and an uncle who actually lived in Ladue at the time. So spent a lot of time growing up in St. Louis. Um, having said that, though, Kansas City is home, and right out of high school, I actually joined the military and was in two different branches of the military. Started out in the United States Army, and uh, when I was there, I was fifth-generation Army. My grandfather was actually a retired major general, so it was kind of in the blood, so to speak. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. And, and after three years in the 1st Cavalry Division as what they call a combat engineer, which is a, you know, essentially an infantry person with a little bit of knowledge of landmines and demolitions and explosives. So in short, I blew things up for a living for three years. A lot of fun, <laughs> but it didn't really transfer to the civilian sector too well. Got out of the Army and actually joined the United States Coast Guard after that for about four and a half years. So total time served was about eight years. It was all pre-9-11. Mm-hmm. Got out um, at 25 years old in mm-hmm. January of 2001. Mm-hmm. I went on terminal leave. Though my actual uh, terminal service date was actually September 8th of 2001. Did you serve in, like, Bosnia or any other places that were outside the United States? I spent some time in Panama, Mm -hmm. but uh, was never deployed, no combat experience. Uh, A lot of my friends, of course, went on after 9-11 to to serve in theater, but I never did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a a combat engineer in the Army, but a corpsman, or essentially a medic, in the Mm -hmm. Coast Guard. And so when 9-11 hit, I was a 26-year-old college freshman and always had the desire, just this kind of innate desire, uh, maybe ideological, if you will, uh, to, for public service. 
And just uh, I can remember talking to my grandfather, who was, uh, you know, really the only conservative influence in my life about foreign policy, like at 10 years old or 12 years old. And then, of course, uh, my mother, God bless her, uh, is a, uh, an avowed you know, liberal Democrat, voted for Barack Obama twice. My little brother did, too. Dad was a moderate Republican. So uh, I really kind of came to this thing called conservatism, really, of my own, you know, my own decision and uh, really didn't find my way into it until my early 20s, uh, right before I got out of the, the military. Went to college here in Missouri, graduated from the University of Central Missouri out of Warrensburg, used to be CMSU degrees in political science and history. And towards the end of my education, like any other college student, I was looking for an internship and an entry into the into my field of choice and started to apply for internships. This was kind of around the 2004 election cycle. Mm-hmm. I was 29, almost 30 years old, and um, got a job with Missouri's House Republican Campaign Committee, HRCC. Went down to Jefferson City, interviewed with a gentleman named David Hageman, who was the yeah. executive director at the time, Rod Jetton, who was mm-hmm. the pro tem at the time, and uh, got a job with HRCC making about $1,000 a month and, you know, working 70 to 80 hours a week. Uh, they had me up in northwest Missouri, and so in order to do that, uh, they had to make sure that a certain gentleman uh, up in that neck of the woods with a lot of influence was comfortable with me. So they sent me on what I have to say is probably one of the most unique interviews of my life, and that was a gentleman named Jeff Rowe, yeah. <laughs> uh, who went on to found Axiom Strategies at the time, though. He was Sam Graves' campaign guy as well as you know chief of staff. And just so our listeners know, Jeff Rowe is now the campaign manager for Ted Cruz. That's right. And That's he was right. on our podcast about a year ago, and it was one of the most listened to podcasts I think we've ever had. I'm just saying that just to make Jeff Rowe's fragile ego feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but continue. I've known Jeff for about 11 years. He'll love that. Yeah, Go ahead. That's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, he was comfortable with me. And uh, so I went up to Northwest Missouri and I handled six state representative campaigns simultaneously. And some of the some of the people that year were like Representative Tim Fluke, yeah. uh, Bob Nance, Jerry Nolte. These are people that are no longer in the legislature. But uh, those were some of my races, Jim Guest, Jason Brown, a guy named Lyndall Black. And he was the only loss that year. So we won five out of six. Uh, HRCC actually kept me on after that, which was somewhat unusual. And then from that point, I uh, actually ended up doing Ryan Silvey's special election in April of 05. Mm-hmm. And then from that, I actually went down to Georgia uh, to manage a U.S. congressional race for uh, a while uh, in what was then Georgia's new 8th congressional district. And after about six months on the ground, I really didn't see eye to eye with the candidate um, I myself was questioning whether or not I wanted to vote for him, let alone convince <laughs> other people to vote for him. So I decided That's always to, a strong yeah, signal. Right. <laughs> Made the wrong decision, right? <laughs> so I decided to come back to, to Kansas City, and it just so happened that Jeff was starting Axiom Strategies. Mm-hmm. At the time, he had one employee, and so I was the second employee. And that year in 2006, in the role of an associate at Axiom Strategies, I ended up managing Sandra Thomas's down ballot race for state auditor. Oh, I remember yes. that contest pretty yes. well. It was not the not one of Jeff Rowe's successes, but no, it no. was it was a it was a tough year for any Democrat to be running statewide. Obviously, Claire McCaskill beat Jim Talent, and the auditor's race that year was kind of an afterthought. But I think that she kind of got caught under the wave, and also she faced an opponent, Susan Monty, who mm-hmm. was able to self finance mm-hmm. quite a bit, and that probably didn't help matters yeah. at all. So. 
You know, there was a there was a model for us to win if if Jim had won by you know three yes. plus points, but of course that wasn't the case. And uh, you know, I really did the day to day. Jeff did the kind of the general consulting work. Um, we won a five-way primary and not anticipated to win, so we were proud of that. But you're right, the general election, we fell a little bit short. And I, I, you know, I stayed with Axiom for a little while, and then after that, I decided to just move on for a little while. So in early 2007, out of what I kind of call almost a three-year whirlwind entry uh-huh. into campaign politics, I got into the private sector for a while. Um, I worked kind of in higher education, but I also did major gift fundraising, uh, please don't tell anybody, but for the University of Kansas Medical Center, uh, that's actually on uh, State Line Road. So we won't hold it against you. <laughs> but continue. So, uh, but you know that was all about medical education and and medical research. And again, major gift fundraising. So we defined that as anything over twenty five thousand uh-huh. dollars, and uh, helped raise a million plus dollars for a new rural. Um, medical school campus in Salina, uh-huh. Kansas, and did some other things like that. Stayed involved in politics at the local county level, was county chair during that time, helped elect my local state representative, uh, Rick Bratton, who beat Luke Scavuzzo mm-hmm. in an upset, and just did all that to kind of continue to scratch that political itch. And in 2011, walked away from that position um, at the University of Kansas Medical Center and decided I wanted to just get back into politics. And so I hung out my own shingle for about a year and tried to describe myself as a political consultant, mm-hmm. which is an affront to political consultants everywhere. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I started to pick up races from state Senate yeah. to U.S. Senate to just anything that I could, uh, I could get and very quickly just realized that I wasn't really built like that. And so after 2012, a friend of mine and I were sitting around his kitchen table commiserating about the, uh, the results as a, you know, as a conservative and f- trying to figure out what we could do to really impact the public policy space, where we could do it most efficiently and effectively. And that was really the idea, the genesis of the idea for Missouri Alliance for Freedom. We began to put together concept papers, potential budgets, and all these kinds of things, and then began to network with people in order to try to find out you know what you know how we could find funding to actually you know sustain something like this because what i learned in major gift fundraising in the philanthropy world was one you never ask for marriage on the first date the donor has to be passionate about the the cause whether that's right. cancer research or medical education or you know political policy involvement and it has to be a good fit and we were, you know, fortunate enough to be able to kind of network our way into an entree uh, to an initial investor who liked the idea. But even that, there was a conversation that occurred over the course of about a year. And when we finally got to the point where they decided to go ahead and seed the organization, uh, we were able to take the next step. And then we launched Missouri Alliance for Freedom as a small nonprofit company, essentially. Uh, in December of 2013, but really in earnest in the next month in January 2014. Mm -hmm. And so we're not even really two years old yet. So you described the organization as kind of a conservative organization with a libertarian streak. But if you wanted to describe it further about what it is, that would be helpful for both us and our listeners. Absolutely. Uh, You know, this is a a public interest group. Um, You know, it's a 501c4 nonprofit. Which also means you do not have to identify your donors. Right. So is there a reason you decided to go a 501c4 as opposed to like a PAC or something else where you would? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
one of the reasons that we decided to do a 501c4 as opposed to a political action committee is so that we could really truly engage in the in the issue advocacy space so that we could go down and spend a lot of time which we do with the legislature between you know January and May if they're there at 7 a.m. so are we if they're there at 2 a.m. so are we and we're just keeping an eye on what things are doing we're in the committee hearings we're in the gallery we're in offices advocating for or against public policy and because of that as a 501c4 you can really do that you know uh, and as a political action committee you know that's really focused more or less on the election side of the ball we don't engage in any electioneering just not our model I know other c4s you know do and there's a certain percentage of political involvement that c4s are allowed per the IRS but we just don't engage in yeah and that was gonna be my next question because I have an article that I wrote from 2012 after the 2012 election cycle as I'm sure you remember there were several instances where politically active 501 c4s got involved mm-hmm. in electioneering sure. when this came to light there was talk in the legislature from Republicans right. about trying to force politically active 501c4s Mm -hmm. to disclose their donors. And this is a quote from then just regular state representative Todd Richardson. Um, People are allowed to make significant contributions and races through the tool of 501c4s without any disclosure of the source. And I think in the system that's predicated on transparency, we've got to address that. Now, and they haven't done that, even though there's been increasing. I mean, I wrote a story about the spring about the proliferation of 501c4s on both sides, because sure, Progress right. Missouri mm-hmm. is, 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 is a 501c4, and they're, mm-hmm. they're pro- prolific and uh, progress on the progressive side. Absolutely. But I think what he was getting at was when the re- mainly Republicans eliminated campaign finance limits in mm-hmm. 2008, the, they, they were waving this banner of transparency, transparency right, yeah. and it seems like 501c4s are kind of going against that principle. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think about that? I can understand how someone who comes from the traditionally political space and is used to this kind of transactional nature of (laughs) fundraising um, would come to that conclusion. I come at it from a little bit different perspective. Uh And and remember, I mean, I spent three to four years in the philanthropic space. Right. So I I really kind of take it just a, a much different view of this. When we're talking cancer research, when we're talking medical education or higher ed or, you know, whatever you're, you know, you're thinking about funding. The concept of donor relations is sacrosanct. And what I mean by that is if the donor wants to you know, write a, a seven-figure check, let's say, to fund cancer research at Barnes Jewish Hospital, and that donor wants public recognition, then those development directors and their development staff are going to be able to provide all of that information, and they'll have the big ribbon-cutting ceremony. But if the donor wants to remain private, if they want their contribution to be anonymous, then it is. And you don't ever violate that very sacred relationship between the donor and the the thing that they're trying to affect. If you look at the word philanthropy, and I've always just really liked this, so you'll have to forgive me, but you know, if you remember kind of your Greek roots, you have phylos, right, which is right. which is love, and you have anthropos, which is essentially mankind. Philanthropy, i.e. the love of mankind. People give to things that they want to help and better society. And so the concept of whether it's a 501c3 organization like the Show Me Institute or their counterparts on the left or a 501c4 um, group like Missouri Alliance for Freedom on the right or Progress Missouri on the left, you have people who are earnestly giving money 
to affect and impact the public policy space. And they're doing it because from their perspective, it's for the betterment of humankind through public policy. Now, I realize that that doesn't necessarily transpose itself onto the situations that you outlined from a few years ago, but that's the perspective that we come at this from. And I think it's very important to also remember, even during the founding of, of this American experiment, is that the people who wrote the Federalist Papers, you know, they had this great public discourse back and forth about the Constitution. And most of those were written under pen names. So anonymous political speech is as old as the Republic itself. And I think it's an important facet of the, of the public space, especially when you look at the IRS scandal and things like that where you had political targeting and use of officialdom, if you will, to potentially target and, 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 and obstruct or disrupt the operations of people who disagreed. What do you see, okay, uh, beyond the funding issue, what do you see as your chief purpose? Uh, I know you guys have now some scoring, leadership scores, which is interesting. And there are several groups who do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just interesting when you look at trying to influence the legislature or lobby the legislature on certain issues, are there certain things that you're looking at? And uh, what do you see as your chief purpose? Do you see your group as being aligned at all with some of the Tea Party groups, uh, which sort of started in 2009, 2010? although some of them aren't as active now. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of interested how you kind of see your role. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. We view ourselves as an issue advocacy group, and we view ourselves as uh, an accountability group. And so this is all about trying to hold the Missouri legislature accountable. And really, we've only engaged at the level of the Missouri legislature so far. And you will find uh, Republican representatives in here who self-define as conservatives who did not do that well. And so just as a, as a very quick story, I can remember being in rural Missouri in a rural district, uh, speaking in front of a local Republican party group who invited me to talk. Before I got to talk, the local state representative got to talk. This was in 2014. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The local rep got up and, and touted gun rights, uh, you know, abortion and, and being pro-life and tax cuts. And then I got up and went through the scorecard. She got a D with us that year and just walked through you know, how she voted and why she got a deal with an organization like us, even though she had a reputation as being a very strong conservative. And you know, by the end of it, that representative was crumpling up our scorecard and throwing it at me in bright red and uh, not very happy that I was there talking to her local group. And I do that kind of thing you know, all over the state of Missouri. In 2014, I went to 125 grassroots events to educate voters about the voting record of their state representatives. That provides a measure of accountability uh, at the grassroots level, in a lot of cases with the representative or the senator's base. And so we do a lot of that. And then conversely, during session, we're in the building and we're advocating for things like right to work, which we spent a lot of time on this last year, or opposing uh, things like prescription drug monitoring, yeah. uh, which we uh, played a large role in killing that legislation. Now, I want to kind of transition into issues, especially right to work. Absolutely. I know, your, I know your group was pretty heavy into that. Also, how many people are on your payroll? Just myself and one other person. Okay. There's only two of us. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so why when would I say you... a small nonprofit? We are okay. a small nonprofit. Okay. I, I would say two equals a small <laughs> nonprofit. 
why was your group so engaged in right to work and why were why do you think it was so important for it to be passed well, for us it was about freedom of choice it was that it was that simple and it was about allowing a, a worker an employee if you will the right to choose whether or not to join a union uh, and i can remember um now just to be absolutely. fair they don't have to join now they they don't have to join but they do have to pay dues i mean the bills were to prevent them from having to pay dues it's a, yeah that's an important i mean I, I, I just want to make a distinction you know that they don't have to join a union but if they're if there is a bargaining unit they do have to pay so which is why the bills were to make it so they didn't have to pay which i appreciate the nuance but for us i mean it's 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 pretty much the same thing. Okay, I know, but just so, so our listeners know. But no, go no, ahead. No, go no, ahead. no. But yes, continue. No, thank you. So so they, they, they don't have the choice right now of whether or not they want their money going to the unions, which may or may not be operating in the political space, you know, as per their, you know, their, their political ideology or what they care about. And so for us, it was really just a matter of choice. And, um, you know, if a, if a, if a local hospital, uh, you know, nursing, you know, unit, Votes to votes to unionize, and it's a very close vote. And let's say it's you know fifty one forty nine or you know whatever. Uh, you know those nurses who voted against either have to now join the union or pay, pay the union. They dues. have to pay. They at least have to pay the dues. Pay the union dues, or they they forfeit their job. And there are many other states around us, whether it's Kansas or Tennessee who don't have that provision, who allow for the employees to choose. And so for us, it was really just a matter of, of being, you know, having the freedom to choose. Opponents of right to work would say that if people who are within an entity that's unionized don't have to pay, but they still get the benefits from it, it counts to quote unquote freeloading. I'm sure you've heard that argument before. We have, right. what, what's your response to that? Well, you know, I can remember um, as a young guy, there was a couple months between uh, the Army and the Coast Guard, and I went over to Lenexa, Kansas, which is 15 minutes away from where I live, and I loaded trucks for UPS, and they have a big distribution center there. And Kansas, being a right-to-work state, gave me an option of whether or not I wanted to join the union and pay the dues or not. And they had a, a union track, and then they had a non-union track. And I, went, I chose the non-union track while the guy behind me in line chose the union track. And the only difference was is that I didn't receive the benefits of the, the collective bargaining uh, union membership that my, my partner did. Um, and that was, quite frankly, just a, just a matter of choice. I, I, op, I opted out, and I didn't benefit from their, their negotiation. I negotiated my own deal, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that we could create that exact same system in Missouri. As our listeners know, right to work passed both chambers mm -hmm. of the legislature. Mm -hmm. It did not get overridden because many Republicans in the Missouri House voted against it. And what I've noticed is your group has criticized some of those Republican members for, for making that determination. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of the people that voted against it, Representative Kathy Conway, at sure. least on Facebook, has criticized your group, going back to the fundraising aspect, saying, you know, all the money that comes to me from unions is disclosed in the mm -hmm. Missouri Ethics Commission. None of it from your group is dis disclosed. So that's kind of an example of the back and forth between 
the opponents of right to work mm-hmm. or Republicans in your group. So what, what did you kind of make of that kind of interplay between some of the Republicans that voted against overriding the governor's veto and your organization or other conservative organizations? A couple things, because, you, you, you know, you raise up the, the MEC disclosure of a 501c4 that we right. just talked about. Yeah. A lot of the, the, the chatter, if you will, about, you know, a renewed push to right. force groups like us to disclose is coming from the 20 Republicans who voted no on veto override, which I could make an argument that that is an example of political retribution. They're trying to get back at us, and they're trying to use this as a way to do it, which kind of makes my point of why we don't disclose our donors, because we're worried about political retribution. Having said that, though, um, I like Representative Conway. We just stridently disagree about this issue. And, uh, you know, we scored right to work like we scored every other vote. So on our scorecard that we issue annually, you know, that gets one point or zero points depending on your, your vote. And for the record, I'm looking at the scorecard now. Representative Conway got a B. So right. she got 81.5%. Right. Which, right. which, which isn't bad. Right, right. Go ahead. You know, a B is a B. I, you know, I'd take it when I was in school. <laughs> um, so... Uh, you know, it, it, it's one issue. Having said that, though, you know, we have stridently disagreed. She has been critical of our group, and, you know, that, that that's her right. I would also say that, that when we spend any money on issue advocacy as it relates to the legislature, we do disclose those expenditures through MEC. So, or Missouri Ethics Commission for the benefit of your, your listeners. Mm-hmm. So there is disclosure whenever we spend money on issue advocacy. Mm-hmm. We just don't spend a lot of money on issue advocacy in terms of you know, gifts or those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, but we are forced to disclose through MEC um, you know, on this. So if we hosted, a, you know, a lunch and learn for legislators to come and, and to learn about, let's say, employee choice, right to work, worker freedom, whatever you want to call it, you know, we, that would be disclosed publicly for all to see. So I want to play a clip now from Senator Paul Wieland, who we had on our podcast about a year ago. And he's a Republican he, from Jefferson County. Mm-hmm. And this is what he had to say before he was elected to the Senate about right to work. When I asked him whether he was doing it because he legitimately and, and fervently didn't believe in it or whether he was doing it for political purposes mm-hmm. because Jefferson County has a lot of members of organized labor that lives there. Sure. Here's what he had to say. Is that a conviction thing or is that kind of a, a situation where you represent Jefferson County, which has a lot of union people, and you pretty much have to vote that way or you're not going to get reelected? Well, it's a it's a principal thing. And I would tell you this is the reason why. Um Living in Jefferson County, you have family members who are in the unions. And when I look at the arguments, and there's, I guess, three big ones that I look at. One is right to work. Um, right now, with the immigration policy that we have in the United States, I think right to work is a, a terrible ideal for the state of Missouri. Okay, I think it would just decimate these people that have good family staining jobs now. So I imagine, though, that now Senator Whelan isn't the only person who said when they campaigned for office that they weren't for right to work. They didn't believe in it. A lot of their constituents didn't believe in it. And many of them were probably the 20 Republicans who voted against it that are now kind of being in in the crosshairs of not only your group, but other people who are supportive of a right to work. I mean, well, how, you, how, how, do, how do you kind of respond to that that type of argumentation that this is what I had to say when I was running for office and I'm just being consistent about it, essentially? Sure. So, you know, with respect to Senator Wieland, um, you know, if it came down to veto override in the Senate, I would just say that he was one of our, our hopefuls in terms of, you know, flipping. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it didn't come to that. 
But I think that this issue is, you know, is progressing, and we continue to make progress if you look at the counts. I mean, we couldn't even make it to 82 threshold to get out of the House last year, and then 92, and then 96. And I think that people continue to evolve on this issue. Um, I can understand a representative or a senator from Jefferson County, given the nature of Jefferson County, who might be afraid of this vote. I think what you will find uh, this election cycle, and I'm prognosticating a little bit, but I think that you'll find people like Representative Shaw surviving, you know, his his reelection bid, uh, and of course, you know, he was with us on veto override. I think you'll find people like Rob Viscovo, also of Jefferson County, and I think who, he actually camp- be, I think he actually campaigned for right to work in Jefferson County, but not loudly, not loudly. He, but he, he didn't run from it, but he didn't, you know, he didn't lead with his chin either. Understood. Um, having said that, he's been great on the issue for people like us, and I think that he will do just fine during re-election. And so you'll see that that when people take a chance on this and survive, you know, their, their challenges, if you will, uh, when it comes to re-elect, I think you'll continue to see the progression. And we've always made the point, we continue to, that I think it's not a matter of when. It's just, it's, it's not if anymore, but when Missouri becomes a right-to-work state. Now, the way you were talking, and other groups who are aligned with you on this have indicated mm-hmm. this as well, do you think right-to-work is even going to come up in 2016, or do you think they're going to wait till 2017 when they have a new legislature and a new governor? You know, there's no consensus on that yet, I'll be honest. And we've had lots of conversations with groups like ours. Of course, we've been in contact with legislators around the state about the issue. I think that there is a chance we might see it again in 2016. I think what we would see is a modified version of the bill. Um, you, of course— what, what, what would be a modified version? Well, for instance, uh, there was a, a, a criminal penalty associated with this, and you heard a lot about that from the 20 no votes. Well, what if we took that? What if we took that criminal and made it a civil penalty? Would that make it more palatable to people like Kathy Conway? Uh, people have talked about the possibility of uh, of an opt out provision and those mm-hmm. kinds of things, and these are all just still in conversation stage right now. But I think there's a lot of openness to modifying the bill. And the question then becomes, if we modify the bill, can Speaker Richardson get to 109? If he can get to 109 and he passes it with 109, a modified version thereof, then it goes to the Senate. And we all know how Senator Ron Richard feels about this. Uh, He was very confident that he had the override votes, Uh, incredibly so. He probably wouldn't tell you that, but I will. so we, we feel good about that. Now, if it doesn't happen uh, because the Speaker doesn't have 109 votes, I think there are other issues that we can move on to within the labor reform space. Maybe that's a paycheck protection or recertification, mm-hmm. public, uh, public sector union uh, and transparency and those kinds of things. So. Now, are there other issues that, that your group is going to be advancing uh, next session? Absolutely. Uh, school choice is a big issue area for us. Uh, we like the idea of education savings accounts. I think you'll see a bill from Senator Ed Emery on that subject again. He had our bill last year and he'll have it again this year. Uh, and I think after transfer failed, you know, there's an opportunity to maybe come in and make the case that this could actually do something for those parents uh, and kiddos who are stuck in failed school districts. How uh, so exactly? And how would it work? Great question. So an education savings account is not really a voucher. It's similar, but the difference is is the voucher is tied to the building. 
whereas the the education savings account, and they've passed this in five states so far, mm-hmm. Nevada most recently, Arizona, Florida, et cetera, um, where about 90%, roughly, depending on how the legislation is written, but about 90% of the state's piece of education that they spend per pupil would be deposited into an account that the parent has control over. Mm-hmm. And you get a specialized debit card that can only be used for educational purposes, so you can't take it to Applebee's or you know wherever. And uh, it so far has produced uh, really good results in Arizona and Florida. Now it's too early to tell in states like Nevada. But they've also limited it to low income and disabled in those states. Nevada is the closest one where they've done a, a more or less universal ESA program. But you're talking about giving parents the the power and the opportunity um, to really be successful with their child's education. And so, for instance, you can buy it, you can pay for a tutor, you can pay for a private school, but it gives the parents an immediate opportunity, especially in the low income and disabled space, to escape a failing school district. And then a couple of other things that I I think that your organization has taken note of. I I saw a press release uh, where your group uh, raised a lot of alarm about the University of Missouri Police Department mm-hmm. asking students or faculty to report any hateful or dis- hateful or disruptive speech. I'm not sure if I'm getting the words correctly, but it's you. Ac- you guys actually found favor with the American Civil Liberties Union we on agreed, that. Right. Can yeah. you explain why you you weren't so keen on that idea? Well, for us, it's a it's a just a basic freedom of speech issue, and I think it's probably the same for the ACLU without wanting to speak for them. Um, if you read the release, you know it didn't say don't yell fire in the theater or don't threaten anybody, which we understand you can't say, and that's not freedom of speech. It was very broad, and it basically said if you witness hateful or hurtful speech. We want you to get a description of the person. We want you to call the police and let us know what was said, what happened. We want you to get a license plate number if you can. And if it's safe, we want you to get a picture with your phone and send it all to us. And so the really, I mean, what it begs a few natural questions. We, our press release said we have seven questions. And, you know, if you don't mind, we said, you know, was the University of Missouri Police Department ordered to issue the speech directive? And if so, by whom? Uh, who decides what is hateful and hurtful speech, and what are the guidelines used to make that determination? Uh, what disciplinary action will be taken against students who exercise their rights of free speech that others report as hateful or hurtful? Will the description of the individual slash student, their license plate number, and vehicle description as well as the photograph be placed in a database, and how will the incident impact the future of the student's education at the University of Missouri? Does this fund, does this change the fundamental role of the University of Missouri Police Department from law enforcement to speech regulation? Is the University of Missouri concerned about the constitutional implications of the directive? And what actions have the department undertaken to date to enforce the directive? This is the reason why this They haven't answered it yet. Yeah, I, I'm shocked about that. I think the reason it interested me was I actually was in Columbia in 2007 where there was a neo-Nazi march through town. And I would oh, wow. say that the the message of the neo-Nazis was pretty probably hateful. pretty hateful yeah. toward African-Americans, people like me who are Jewish, you know, people who have common sense, I Catholics, would suppose. Catholics. I mean, yeah, exactly. Right. And, um, you know, the city of Columbia allowed them to march because of freedom of speech. Like mm-hmm. they couldn't deny a parade permit to them just based on on content. I believe that there's been Supreme Court cases on this. 
I just wonder like how the MUPD would have reacted if something like that occurred on campus today where somebody who is really vile or hatred, mm-hmm. hateful espouses those types of views on campus. I'm not. I, I'm certainly not going to endorse them, but clearly, they if they fall within the realm of freedom of speech, where they're not inciting violence or, or you know, yelling fire mm. in a, a crowded building, I'm not really sure what you can do about it. Right, essentially, right. is that basically what you're trying to say? Well, you know, they said at the end of their release that they reminded us that speech isn't a crime. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> but in the same breath, they also said. We can, if it's a student, report you to the, I think, the Office of Student Conduct or something like that, and disciplinary action can be taken. You know, for us, there's the old American axiom that I might not agree with what you say, but I'll defend Mm -hmm. your right to say Mm -hmm. it. And I don't know that we live by that too well anymore, just as society in general. To your point about the parade in 2007, yeah, what could you find more vile or more hateful, and I couldn't agree with you more? The whole point of the First Amendment, though, is no matter how hateful it is, they still have a right to say it, and as much as we might you know, find distaste with it. And it's, it's frightening when an official governmental agency like a police department with guns and the ability to put you in jail makes a threat like this. And I will just say that there's a difference between organized speech like that and then yelling a racial slur in an sure. intimidating way, which right. probably does is not covered under the First right. Amendment. I want to make that 100% clear Absolutely. that you, you can't you can't do that in an intimidating you way to incite violence. That's right. But I'm talking about the example I just put forward. I'm not really sure right. what can be done. Right. So the other thing that I wanted to touch on briefly is in the last, I think, 12 to 24 hours, there's been a lot of chatter about whether Syrian refugees should be allowed within borders. There's been a number of state governors who have si- sounded off on this. Joe, I'm not really sure what power a state has to really block refugees. I think it's more of a federal initiative. Yes, it is. And I, I don't want to you know, extend our time too much. But the bottom line is, yeah, it's really the so far the United States has not um, allowed in too many Syrians. There's been some pressure before the tragic um, incidents in Paris to increase that number. But that really hasn't. I was reading some stuff before the show there aren't that many that have been allowed in without sponsors. Now, but but that said, I mean, the governor's sending the statement does at least send a signal to the federal government that we're not with you on this. And, uh, the, yeah, the lieutenant governor of Missouri, Peter Kinder, just told Jane Nixon not to do it. And I know your, your group has been uh, critical of, of the whole idea. Well, we've, you know, we've certainly looked at it recently, you know, as a result of the, the, the Paris— you know, tragedy. Um, we're going to look into what the state legislature, you know, can or you know can't do, and quite frankly, we're not quite sure yet what that is. I don't expect that Governor Nixon will follow Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder's advice on this, um, but we understand that there's a lot of angst out there and a lot of mistrust, and uh, you know, we get that. And I think that states need to probably look into this to see what can and can't be done to protect their citizens. Right. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. We've 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 reached thirty nine forty minutes, Thank and you for we having me. we appreciate you coming all the way here to talk with us about your group and some of the big issues of the day. To read more of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow Mr. Johnson on Twitter at at Ryan Johnson M O or at Missouri Freedom. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. 